direction that I believe the Lord is leading us into uh, starting today. And uh, for the next several weeks, um, the vision that I have from the Lord is a building fitly framed together. A building fitly framed together based in Ephesians. And I shared with you last Saturday that I am an HGTV freak. And I enjoy watching all of the the renovation and the remodel. And the one thing I said last week, and this is where we're heading into today, is we're either setting something new for you today or we're reexamining what's been set before. And that's the foundation. And we need to work, we need to do some foundational work the next few weeks. I believe that the Lord will be pleased in it. And uh, because if the foundation gets right and solid and we repair any cracks, any fissures, any if it gets a little out of balance, it, it changes the rest of the house. And so Jesus Christ himself is our chief cornerstone. We preached about him all of December. And uh, so we're getting ready to, the Bible says we're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being our chief cornerstone. And so for the next several weeks, I, I'm not putting a limit to the number of weeks, but for the next several weeks, I want to be talking about some foundational principles that we believe are key to who we are as Spirit of Grace Church. Does that make sense? And uh, how many have ever been asked this question, what kind of church are you going to? And how many had a real good answer? Uh, it just happened to me yesterday. And you want to know what I said? And those that were here last Saturday will remember. I said, we're an apostolic Pentecostal church. And then I had to explain to him what apostolic Pentecostal meant. But we believe we are an apostolic Pentecostal church. We're built on the doctrine of the apostles and prophets. And we're built on the church that was born in Pentecost. Thus, we are apostolic Pentecostal. And uh, I, I believe that. And so we're going to go into some of these foundational teachings. And today I'm reading from 2 Timothy chapter 2, chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And uh, what you're going to hear over the next several weeks is a revelation of what we believe is the core tenets of the church. And everything that we do, all of the all of the siding that we put on and the, the shingles that we put onto this house, those are all based off of what we have as a foundation. Do you want to, let me give you an, another analogy to that. If you came into our living room and you took a, a little razor and began to peel back the layers of paint in our living room, there wouldn't be one or two or three or four or five, but there may be several, several, I won't even count the number of layers of paint. If we do demo in our living room, we can just take one and it'll just peel the whole thing off because of all the paint that's on there. And you can do that in the spirit world too. We can put all kinds of different looks and different methods and we can put all kinds of different visuals for people to see because culturally we change from time to time and things get outdated, okay? I've often heard preachers and teachers and stuff say, oh, just to go back to the days of the brush arbors. 
No way. I like AC and I like heat. I don't want to sit on a two by 12 with bricks, blocks on the ends. That's not comfortable. Okay? I, I want to be up to that. I like our chairs. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? But if you start messing with the foundation, it changes the house. And we can't change the foundation because God has fitly framed this house together. And it may look different from time to time, and he may bring in a different piece of art. We are his craftsmanship after all, and on all of those things, but the foundation has to be there. So I'm starting today where all the different foundations, I, I, I know what they are, but I had to figure out which one to do first. So we're doing this one. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And here's the reason why. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Obviously, the foundation of this church is the Word of God. I have said it over and over and again. If it's in here, I'll preach it. If it's not in here, I'm not preaching it. Because I don't want to lean on human ingenuity. I don't want to lean on the traditions of a church setting. I want to lean solely on the Word of God. And... Uh, so I want to speak to you today on and answer this question, is the Bible true? Is the Bible true? And uh, I want to state it this way, first of all. Because of different translations and different languages, we can get confused. Let me put it to you this way. I read from the ESV today, there's the King James, there's the New International, there's the NET, there's the NLT, there's the Message, there's, there's Young's, there's, there's the, the, all kinds of them. And uh, if you have questions about that, the person to see is Paul Raschke, or go to our YouTube, look up Paul's name, and find the two lessons, because it took him two weeks, to teach about all of the translations and how they came about. And so you have to understand that all of these, we have to understand that when we say that all Scripture is God-breathed, it doesn't mean that the NLT is God-breathed and the King James is God-breathed because they read differently. What we mean is going back to the original autographs of the Greek, the Hebrew, the Aramaic, those are what's God-breathed. And so sometimes it's the reason why if you missed Sunday school today and you missed a great lesson, adults, you need to come to Sunday school just like the kids need to come to Sunday school, and you'll get a lot from the Word of God. But Paul broke down the word of paraclete for us and got to see some things that our English language doesn't do justice for. Okay? And so we have to understand when, when I say the Word of God, I'm talking about the original manuscript, if you will. Now, there are many books that claim to be the Word of God. The Quran, the Book of Mormon, the Hindus believe that, and I'm not even going to say it right, but the Gavavad Gita Vida. I just saw it sitting in the bookstore this week when I was at the bookstore. 
that is, that's the source of eternal truth. And even Karl Marx, with his atheistic worldview, claimed that his writing, the Communist, Communist Manifesto, was ultimate truth. And so in response to that concept that there's many words of God or words of truth, uh, there have been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books written on the subject of the evidences of divine inspiration of the Bible. And, there, and these evidences are, are many and they're varied. And the problem is, is most people today haven't bought those books and read those books. In fact, several have probably not even read the Bible itself. And so for many people, they tend to go along with the popular delusion that the Bible is just another book. It's full of mistakes and errors, and it's no longer relevant to this world. But for Spirit of Grace Church, it's the foundation of our assembly. And uh, I, I want to give you some information today. This is going to be more of a teaching. I'm going to pile on a ton of information to you so that you can absorb this. And this is the reason why I lean on the Word of God as the sole authority from heaven. I love prophecy. I love anointed preachers. But forever the Word has been established. So it's got to be based on this. So if you find prophecies that don't line up with this, ignore them. If you find teachings that don't line up with this, ignore them. Don't take my word for anything we ever preach or teach. Go back to the word and see if I've said the truth. I hope that I never make a mistake, and, but I'm sure that I have. But the Bible is the authority. I'm not the final authority. The Bible is the final authority. Does that make sense? Um, if you seriously investigate the different biblical evidences... You will find that the claims to divine inspiration within Scripture are stated over 3,000 times in many various ways, and they are amply justified. In fact, Luke put the, the emphasis on us in Luke 21, 14, when he says, Settle it therefore in your hearts, not to meditate before what you shall answer. That doesn't mean speak before you think. That means get so settled about what the Word of God says that you have the answer ready without having to think about it. It's just second nature to you. 2 Peter 3.15 says, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Somebody asks you, well, what makes you different? Why are you smiling? What? You've got to have an answer for it. And so the Bible is the key to uh, understanding that. So how do I know that the Bible is true? There is a fascinating and unique perspective of Christianity as to the accuracy of biblical prophecy. There are over 2,000 accurately fulfilled predictions in the Bible including over 300 specific details about the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ. For example, if you read Isaiah 53, it beautifully describes Jesus 700 years before Jesus is ever born. And even the town of Jesus' birth is revealed in Micah several hundred years before Jesus is born. 
and the interesting thing about the prophetic evidences within Scripture is there hasn't been one prophecy that has failed. Now, there's some prophecies that haven't come to pass yet, but there hasn't been one failure. And so unquestionably, the single greatest evidence lending to the, the claims of the Bible that it's divinely inspired is the fulfillment of this Bible prophecy. So thank you. Consider this. Let's just use rational thought today. If you or any man or woman were able to clearly and consistently foresee the future, would there be a billion-dollar Las Vegas gambling industry? I bet not. If everybody could, if somebody could know it, as my, man by himself is unable to see these future events, prophecy becomes a reasonable indicator that something is supernaturally inspired. And the Bible claims to contain more than a thousand inspired prophecies. And the majority of these prophecies have already come to pass and can be verified by secular history, not by another churchgoer. Let me give you an example. If you read Ezekiel chapter 26, you will see the prophecy that concerns God's judgment against the ancient Phoenician capital of Tyre. And the prophecy states that Tyre would first be raised by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and then later it would be utterly destroyed by a coalition of uh, nations flattened like the top of a rock, its ruins uh, pushed into the sea, even the dust of it, becoming a place for fishermen to lay out their nets to dry. Surrounding nations would witness Tyre's fate and surrender without a fight. It's an odd prophecy. But you can go back, not just in biblical history, but secular history, and you can see that the conditions of this prophecy was fulfilled. Even to the tiniest detail, King Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed Tyre. A little while later, Alexander the Great led a coalition of nations against Tyre and demolished it and scraped it to the bedrock and threw its ruins into the sea, and the ancient site became a place where fishermen dried their nets. You see, prophecy is a fairly accurate indicator. And prophecy is not just a phenomenon in the ancient past. Do you have to realize that Israel was promised, even though they're the least of all peoples, according to Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, that they were without a homeland and without freedom. They were serving as slaves in Egypt. And at that time, Egypt was the dominant world power. However, because of a promise that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we've been talking about this in our studies on Thursday nights, and God rescued the Israelites from bondage with a mighty hand, according to Deuteronomy 26, with an outstretched arm, with great terribleness, with signs and with wonders. And God gave the Israelites a homeland of their own. We call it the promised land on the other side of Jordan. But it never came to be. And then they were scattered abroad. And then in 70 A.D., they were scattered all around the world to where there was no homeland for the Jews. It's amazing. Nevertheless, after 1,900 years... 
think of that. God promises that the Jews would be removed from the land and they would come back. And after 1,900 years, they come back in 1948 and take up some home ground. Here's the thing. That prophecy hasn't been totally fulfilled yet because they don't have the original boundary lines yet. But sociologists tells us that it's a matter of two or three generations when groups of people have been scattered abroad that they give up their identity and they adapt into the identity that they've been around. But yet 1,900 years at least, there's still a Jewish culture. Isaiah in Isaiah 45 tells about the Persian king, Cyrus. Now, Isaiah prophesied during the reign of Hezekiah who died in 687. And Cyrus did not begin to reign as the king of Persia until after 600. So more than 80 years after Isaiah had already left the scene, there, you, you can't tell me that it was accidental that a man named Cyrus became the king of uh, Persia, if you will. And so when you're faced with a historical, when you're faced with prophetical evidence, you have one of the following options to buy into. Either the Bible was written by him for whom no time is a barrier, God Almighty, or it is a joke or it is a hoax in which people later scribble together and patch together all of the prophecies to make the Bible look good, or it's just an evil deception. You have to choose. I choose the first. It was written by him for whom time is no barrier. And the remarkable evidence of fulfilled prophecies is is just one case in point. Hundreds of prophecies have been fulfilled specifically and meticulously, often long after the prophetic uh, writer had passed away. I want you to think of some of the writings and the books that society has accepted as true. And there is no other one like the Bible, ancient or modern, that can ascribe to this prophetical outcome. The vague and usually erroneous prophecies of people like Jeannie Dixon and Nostradamus and Edward Casey, all the others that fall into that category, none of them are accurate like the Bible is accurate. Even religious books like the Quran, Confucian, and Alexa, similar religious writing, none of them line up as accurate upon viewing the Bible. So here's, here's the last thing about prophecy that I want to mention today. But I read a book years ago by the name uh, from the author was Peter Stoner in his book called Science Speaks. And he says that by using the modern science of probability in reference to only eight messianic prophecies, everybody say eight And there's been over 300 that are fulfilled. So just take eight of them. Okay? Just eight. We find the chance that any one man might have lived and fulfilled all eight of those prophecies. Not 300, just the eight. And the probability is this. One in ten to the 17th power. That would be one 
in 100 kajillion. One with 17 zeros after it. In order to help us comprehend that staggering probability, Stoner illustrates it by saying, if we take 10 to the 17th power in silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas, they will cover the entire state two feet deep. And if you mark one of those silver dollars and you stir the whole mess up thoroughly and you blindfold a man and tell him he can travel as far as he wants to, but he must pick up only one silver dollar that is marked. And that's the likelihood of just eight messianic prophecies being fulfilled. You think about that. If you add just another 40 to the 8, the number grows to 1 in 10 to the 157th power. I don't have a name for what that number is. But I do know this. Remember that. 1 in 10 to the 157th for 48 prophecies. The estimated number of electrons in the universe is only 10 to the 79th power. It's pretty good odds, if you will, that the word of God is true, just based off of prophecies being fulfilled. But prophecies aren't the only thing. I, for a long time, I I like archaeology to the extent that archaeologists in the Holy Land, the other archaeologists, I don't care about rocks. But when I watch and listen to some of the historical accuracy of the scriptures. It is in a class by itself. Now, I'm going to mention some things that society has accepted as true and fact, and they still argue about the Bible. But the scriptures in historical accuracy is in a class by itself. It's far superior to all the written records of Egypt And Alexandria, Egypt, was known as the greatest library of the world, more than the written records of Assyria and other nations of the time. And archaeological confirmations of this record have been innumerable in the last two centuries. There was a man by the name of Dr. Nelson Gluck. He was, at his time, he was noted as the greatest authority on Israeli archaeology. He said this, No archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical descriptions has often led to amazing discoveries. Dr. William Bright, just hold on. I know I'm giving you a bunch of stuff, but I'll tie it all together here before we get done. Dr. William Bright, who was not a friend of Christianity, but he was known as the foremost authority of Middle Eastern archaeology, he said this, there can be no doubt that archaeology has confirmed the substantial historicity of the Old Testament. Over 25 thousand sites have now been discovered and this that number's from years ago over 25,000 sites have now been discovered that pertain to the bible 
And even though archaeology doesn't prove a spiritual truth, it confirms the amazing accuracy of the Word of God. As a comparison, the religion of Mormonism makes many claims as to history, especially about the Americas, yet not one of its claims have been or can be verified by archaeology, seriously damaging its credibility. Consider the exodus from Egypt. Pharaoh, Egypt's monarch, chases the Israelites with an army uh, of chariots, cornering Israel at the Gulf of Aqaba over the Red Sea. And God miraculously parts the waters. We know the story. And we get all excited about the water parting. And and the Egyptians follow them on the dry ground until the last Jew steps out of the water. And God allows the water to come back down and kill all of the Egyptian army. Now, just as an aside before I finish that, I know that there are some people that say, well, it wasn't the Red Sea, it was the Reed Sea, which was a lot less shallow. I don't care if it was the Reed Sea and a lot less shallow, he's still swallowed up an army. It's a miracle one way or the other. Now, I believe it was the Red Sea. And the reason why I believe it was the Red Sea is because what I'm getting ready to tell you here. Archaeologists have discovered a number of evidences vindicating the Bible's Exodus account, including chariot wheels embedded in coral along the land bridge or the ground at the bottom of the Red Sea. Recent discoveries have validated the historical integrity of the Bible causing many archaeologists who have had a poor regard for the Bible to turn from bias against to a scientific respect for the Bible. For example, in Genesis 15, verse 20, a people called the Hittites are mentioned. For centuries, people laughed at the Bible for making up a whole group of people, but several decades ago now, the ruins of a city located in the country of Turkey, just north of present-day Israel, was discovered, which proved to be the ruins of the main Hittite city. Here's Here's a couple of others. In Genesis 14... The Bible speaks of Abraham's victory over Ketelomar and the five Mesopotamian kings. And for years, biblical skeptics laughed at these accounts and called them fictitious. And yet, it was in the 1960s, the Ebla tablets were discovered in North Syria. And thousands of these tablets were discovered with many of them making reference to the five cities identified in Genesis 14. And two of those cities, if you remember, were Sodom and Gomorrah that you may also remember were destroyed by fire and brimstone if you read Genesis 19. And critics said that the story was created to just communicate a moral principle. And yet the story has been proven accurate by excavation. In fact, there was a city that was discovered that had obviously been destroyed by a massive fire, and it lay under a coating of ash several feet thick. A cemetery was uh, about a kilometer outside of the city was found that contained charred remains of roofs, posts, bricks turned from red heat. And this is what Dr. Bryant Wood said. This isn't me. This, this is him. He's describing these houses He states that a fire began on the top of the roofs of those houses. 
and eventually, he says, the burning roof collapsed into the interior and spread inside the building. He said this, that was the case in every house they excavated. It didn't go from house to house. It didn't spread that way. It was from the top down. And such a fiery destruction would match from the biblical account that the city was destroyed by fire that rained down from heaven. He said this, the evidence suggests and outright states that this site, and I'm not going to try to pronounce it, is the biblical city of Sodom. I just watched, it's only been about a month or two ago, popped up on my YouTube or somebody sent it to me, but they found the city of Jericho. And the city of Jericho, skeptics maintained for years that it was a myth, but a man by the name of John Garstein, Dr. John Garstein, made a remarkable recovery. He said this, as to the main fact, there remains no doubt the walls fell outward so completely the attackers would be able to clamber, clamber up and over the ruins of the city. And then in March 1990, in an issue of Time magazine, Kathleen Kenyon, an archaeologist, said that the walls fell suddenly and the city was conquered quickly. And further study has dated that the fall of those walls fit the biblical time frame. Is the Bible true? You need to decide. In fact, there is no scientific fact that has ever disproved the Bible in any way. And most people will say, well, the Bible is not a scientific book, but it is meant to provide a religious or a spiritual view of the universe. Nice try. The implication of that statement is that because physical descriptions serve a religious intent, that these descriptions cannot be expected to be absolutely accurate. Therefore, we are told, don't trust the scientific details, but only seek the moral or the religious teaching of the Scripture. That line of thinking is absolutely wrong because it doesn't make any sense. It's illogical. How are you and I to decide which statements in the Bible are true and which one are just for spiritual intent if we can't trust that the Bible is true to the very core? If we cannot trust that some statements are in the Bible, we can't trust the moral message either. The line of thinking is wrong because it is a faithless insult to God. Like God can write about your morals, but he can't tell you what's going on in the world. I want you to notice these. Uh, uh, the evidence of divine inspiration is found in the fact that many of the principles of modern science were recorded as facts of nature before any scientist said they were. Here's a couple of them. Isaiah 40, verse 22, talks about the roundness of the earth. Isaiah 55, 9, it talks about the infinite extent of the universe. 2 Peter 3, 7 deals with the law of conservation of mass and energy. This is before science. In, in Ecclesiastes 1, 7, we can see the hydrologic cycle. To everything there is a season. Scientists can prove it all they want. It was written a long, long time ago. 
In Jeremiah 33, there's a vast number of stars. In Psalm 102, there's the law of increasing entropy. In, in Leviticus 17, there's the paramount importance of blood in the life process. In Ecclesiastes 1.6, there's the atmospheric circulation. So when you watch the weather today and what they're going to tell you is going to happen over the seven days or so, just know that Solomon wrote about it in Ecclesiastes. And in Job, the gravitational field, before every scientist, Job recognized it in Job 26. And there's others. These obviously, if you read the Scripture, aren't written in technical jargon. But in terms of the basic world of man's everyday experience, but they are completely in accord with modern scientific fact. I need to move quickly so you can get this. But the Bible is a remarkable book. It is unquestionably the world's all-time bestseller with millions of copies sold, billions probably, or even trillions sold. In fact, in 1999, that's how long ago this number comes from, the United Bible Society said they delivered 627 million Bibles worldwide in one year. Now, the Bible is not one book. The Bible is actually 66 books put together. There's 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. And the Bible was completed in its entirety over 2,000 years ago and stands today as the best literary work of all antiquity, which just means old. It has over 20, now this number is even older because they found some others, but there's over 24,000 ancient New Testament manuscripts discovered so far. Now I want you to compare that with the second best, the second best literary work of, of old, Homer's Iliad. How many have ever heard of it? How many have ever read it? Yeah, I didn't think so. There's only 643 preserved manuscripts. And yet a philosopher will always put Homer above the Bible, even though there's over 24,000 manuscripts. In fact, the oldest copy of the most famous Greek poems are from eight to 1,000 years newer than the original. So they wrote it, and within 1,000 years, somebody copied it. And no scholar would question it. They wouldn't even argue that these were Greek classics, that they were unfaithful to the original and they should be thrown away. But you contrast that to the Scriptures. The oldest copy of many Old Testament books are only 200 years newer. So when it was written and the first copy came out, 200 years had elapsed. And the oldest copies of some of the New Testament books are dated only to 50 years after what was written about. And so on the basis of that information, I know this is all technical stuff, but, but I'm trying to make a point. The Bible should be trusted at least as much as Homer, but so much greater. And the individual writers of this Bible, these 66 books, had no idea 
that their message was eventually going to be incorporated into such a book such as the Bible. But every one of them, nevertheless, fits perfectly into place and serves its own unique purpose as a component of a whole. Think of that. There wasn't a committee meeting with Moses who started writing Genesis. And if you really think about it, with Job, who's the earliest book, it wasn't there. They didn't have a committee meeting and were telepathically appointed to talk to John, who was the last disciple in 100 A.D., and say, okay, we'll fit this book here, this, you say this, I'll say this. None of that. They were all just writing based off of what God had inspired them to write. And yet woven throughout its fabric, there's a symmetry that's incapable of explanation of chance or collusion. The human writers lived and died at different times, but the same God who lives forever told each man what to write. And for that reason, we are able to compare the different parts. We can read Genesis and Revelation and tie them all together. In 1 Corinthians 2.13, you can see that it's all fitly framed and tied together. We can go to any part of the Bible and know that it's consistently trustworthy. Listen, this is foundational stuff. This is why we teach from the Bible, preach from the Bible. But consider also that the things of the Bible doesn't just come from the Bible itself, but there are more exterior writings of people outside the Bible proving the Bible. Let me say it this way. There are historians that were living at that time or shortly thereafter that approved what was being said in the Scripture. People like Tacitus and Suetonius and Pliny the Younger and Epitechus and Lucian and Aristotle and Josephus. Why did they name people that way back then? I don't know. From 100 to 450, it's amazing about all of the quotations that the early church fathers wrote about in Scripture. In fact, it has been said that you could come up with an entire New Testament manuscript. If it disappeared, it would still be possible to reconstruct it based on the quotes from those from 100 to 400. And so in his book, Sir Frederick Kenyon said this, the interval between the dates of original composition and the earliest evidence becomes so small as to be in fact negligible and the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us as they were written has now been removed. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. Really quick, two more points and then I'll be done. Consider the integrity of the Bible's writers. Men who claim to be inspired by God. Take, for example, Luke. He was a doctor. Everybody say he was a scientist. He authored several aspects of the New Testament. In fact, Luke is regarded as an authoritative historian, one of the greatest of antiquity. And John McRae 
said it this way, the general consensus of both liberal and conservative scholars is that Luke is very accurate as an historian. He's erudite. He's eloquent. His Greek approaches classical quality. He writes as an educated man, and archaeological discoveries are showing over and over again that Luke is accurate in what he has to say. That's a scholar's. By the way, these scholars that I'm quoting to date aren't scholars in Scripture. They're scholars in the things of science. William Ramsey said this, Luke is a historian of the first rank. And so let's consider people like that. Let's consider the martyrdom of these authors of Scripture. According to sources within Scripture and traditions outside of the Bible, many of the Bible's writers died brutal and horrible deaths in defense of their written testimony. In fact, all but one of the New Testament authors was executed for proclaiming and defending their testimonies. Uh, Of course, martyrdom is not unique, and many people have died willingly for their beliefs. What makes the New Testament author's martyrdom different or special is that these men were in a position to know the truth about their written accounts. Think about it. No one knowingly dies for a lie. For example, you go all the way back to 2001, September 11th. The hijackers probably seriously and sincerely believed in what they died for. But they were not in a position to know whether their beliefs were absolutely true. The hijackers put their faith in religious traditions passed down over many generations. In contrast, the Bible's martyrs were in a position to know the truth because they were eyewitnesses to what they wrote. They were eyewitnesses to the historical uh, events that they recorded. So either they saw what they claimed to see or they didn't plain and simple. Nevertheless, these people hung on their testimonies even to their brutal deaths at the hands of their persecutors. And despite giving every chance to recant what they wrote, why would so many people die for a lie? I don't believe they would. They had nothing to gain for for, for lying and everything to lose. I can trust them. And then the last thing I want to share is the biblical unique effect on individual men and women throughout the history of the nations. I mentioned earlier, but it is the all-time bestseller, appealing both to hearts and minds, beloved by at least some in every race or nation or tribe in which it has gone. Rich, poor, scholar, simple, king, commoner, men of literally and women of literally every background and walk of life. No other book has ever held such universal appeal or produced such lasting effects. I find the truth of Scripture in the testimony of those who have believed it. Multitudes of people, past and present, have found from personal experience that its promises are true, its counsels are wise and sounds, its commands and its restrictions are wise, and its wonderful message of salvation meets every need for time 
and eternity. There's nothing like this book. Why is there nothing like this book? Because the Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh. When we have a relationship with this book, and we read it, and we absorb it, and we listen to it, we are having a relationship with the one that became the baby of Bethlehem. And even if we don't necessarily understand what we're reading, we're still absorbing Jesus. So my last question to you today, is the Bible true? Amen. Do you understand why this is at the core of the foundation, that we lean on the Word of God and why we can trust the Word of God? Why Pastor Trish and I do all of our counseling based on the Word of God? Why do we do all of our correction and reproof and rebuke and teaching and leading and doctrines and teachings based off of the Word of God? Because the Word of God is the Word of God. So if you believe that today, you have to understand that this word promises to remove the penalty of judgment and gives assurance that there is no condemnation to those who trust in him. I don't care what your background is. I don't care what you've done with your life so far. You're never too far away because the Bible, which is the truth, says you're never too far away. You're always as close as the mention of his name. If you're in this house today, the Bible promises that if you will seek for him, you will find him. The Bible promises, if you believe this is true, the Bible promises that he will make you clean inside and outside. If you believe the Bible to be true, it promises freedom from slavery and bondage to sin. It also promises you wisdom and power to successfully overcome everything that comes against against you. Listen, if you believe that the word of God is true and it's the unadulterated inspiration of God, the Bible tells me greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I'm on the winning team. I'm on the championship team. I'm not going to be gone down in defeat because my enemy has already been defeated because this is what the word says. Why do I get excited when I teach and preach? I get excited because I know the ramifications of what the Word has said. That if you would lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lifted up, ye everlasting doors, the King of glory shall come in. The Bible tells me that I shouldn't let my heart be troubled. If I believe in God, I can believe in Christ because he that has seen the Father has seen me. And when we understand who Jesus is, you've got it all at your disposal. I am a child of God. Not based off of my experience, not based off of my emotions, not based off of what you told me, but based off of this. Is the Bible true? It gives meaning and purpose to life. 
Listen, you start reading this, it motivates you to want to live for him. I read this week in Genesis, Jacob. Now, I don't know how good looking Rachel was, but she must have been a find. Fine wine is what Paul calls it. He worked as a slave for seven years. And then the rug was pulled out. And said, oh, no, no, no. You can't marry my younger before you marry my older. Here's Leah. And, and I know that sounds rude and crude, but it was all business transaction back then. So what does Jacob do? Oh, I'm going to serve seven more. Because I want Rachel for my wife. Listen, I'll tell you what that told me. Is that when God has something for us, we just need to buckle down and begin to walk. And if we think it gets pulled out from under us after three days, see, some of us don't want to work for God or live for God because we want it to be all a patch of roses so that we don't have to work for it, deal with it, struggle with it. But listen, my friend, the Bible tells you this in this world you will have tribulation, but rejoice because I've already overcome the world. The Word of God. All of these things in the Word are experiences for a believer. Believers experience a life which they never had before. A new life which was evidenced by the fact that they no longer are full of bitterness and regret about their past since they've already read about God's forgiveness. Experience, or believers experience a new life which is evidenced by the Lord rather than in a vain hope of something's going to work out all right. So I close with this. I invite you to stand. For those of us who don't believe that God inspired the Bible, how do you explain it? How do you explain the prophecies? How do you explain the scientific nature? How do you explain the writing and the literature? How do you explain the writers? And how do you explain the change that the the Word has made throughout history? What compelling reason do we have to reject the Bible as God's divine revelation to man? How many have ever heard somebody criticize another and said, well, your religion is just your crutch, your Christianity is just a crutch? Listen, if it's a crutch, it's the oldest, most sound crutch in the history of mankind. See, as long as we are leading this church, I promise you, in fact, if we ever leave this word, you go. Leave in a heartbeat because this is the final authority of all things. Now listen, it doesn't mean the Bible doesn't challenge our beliefs. There have been some people that have attended our church and I've preached what's in the Bible, and it didn't line up with what they had been taught, what they had come to believe, and so they came to me. 
And, I, and what I didn't say is, well, let's look it up in our statement of faith. I didn't say, well, let's go back to what men have written about. I said, well, what does the Bible say? It's not even about what I say. It's what does the Bible say because if the Bible says it, it's got to be true. That's the foundation we build on. It's the reason why we worship. It's the reason why we teach. It's the reason why we have Sunday school. It's the reason why we have youth. It's the reason why we have catalyst. It's the reason why we have chain breakers. Is it to just grow a pretty group of people? And some of you are kind of pretty. Some well, and it's not about any of that. It's all about this. Is the thing that you build your life upon. And if your life is built upon this, whether you're up in the mountain or down in the valley, you have a sure word of prophecy that the Bible is true, that the Bible will get you through anything, that the Bible will lead you and guide you into all things by his spirit as he reveals himself in your word. I want to challenge you to find a way to read the scriptures. If you can't read them, if all you can do is hear them, go buy one of those apps that read it to you. Whichever one that James Earl Jones did was really cool. But get this in your heart. Listen, the Jews were so strong in this that they attached it to their wrists, they attached it to their forehead. They never left without the word. Now, they didn't have a full Bible, and I'm not asking you to take your Bible and tie it to your head and walk around with it. But get it in you. Listen, can I just challenge some of you this week? Put down your other methods of information and just get lost in this. Don't listen to any other preachers. Don't listen. You've already caught my message today, so you don't have to listen to me this week, at least until Thursday. But in your study time. See, I read and watch and listen to all kinds of stuff, trying to be well-rounded by what people are saying, what things are doing. But sometimes I get so confused because one person's saying this, another's doing this, another's that. Just study this for the week. Just break this down. If you have questions on how to break it down, call me. I'll, I'll help you. Blueletterbible.org is the best one. You can break it down to the tense of the verb, the tense of the noun. You can break it down to all kinds of things. The foundation of this church, God is getting ready to... But until we get the walls and the roof, we've got to make sure the foundation... I'm going to keep preaching on the foundation, but this is the first ingredient. Will you live on it? Here's what I want us to do in closing. I want us to receive his word. And the way that you receive his word is just to embrace it and say, Lord, I may not understand it all, but based on what's been shared today, I can trust your word, and I'm going to consume your word this week. Jesus, we stand in your presence. 
Lord, we're thankful for when the Holy Ghost just sweeps across this place and our emotions go to a high. And But at the same time, God, we want our feet on solid ground. And your word is a foundational piece of this church. And everything we do surrounds itself upon the word of God. And I'm asking you, Lord, to help us receive it this week. Help us to absorb it, Lord. Help us to embrace it, God, and grow in you as we grow in your word. We'll be careful, God, to give you praise and glory. Lord, bring us back together to a full week of events, Lord God, where we can draw together in your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen. Listen, God bless you. We love you.